We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2 this morning. You want to get a Bible app or a Bible open. Uh, and as, we, as you do that, I want to, uh, well, let me say hi, too, to everybody that's watching online, everybody that's on the roof, and everybody gathered here in the room. I'm going to make a quick announcement in case some of you slip out a little bit early toward the end. Next week, we're making a service time adjustment based on some of the good news coming out about COVID. Uh, so we're going to 9 and 11. We're going back to 2. We had, we'd added a third be, to give space for people. Uh, to keep people spaced out, and especially as, as some of our brothers and sisters were coming back for the first time uh, as a way of trying to kind of take out the basin and the towel for them. Um, but we feel like with all this, all the, all the new good news that's going on, that, that that's not necessarily, that's not necessary anymore. Uh, and so we're going to go ahead uh, and have the body be together as much as we can. So next week, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., if you show up at this time, you'll just be a little early, okay? Uh, and we'll praise the Lord together uh, at 9 and 11 going forward, probably throughout the summer. Uh, we, you know, in our new location here, there's some stuff that goes on that makes communication with the church really hard. Uh, and that's because there's so much activity in this space. So we're going to do it next Sunday as opposed to waiting a long time. Because in that window, like for instance, on that weekend of on the other side of June 15th, the infamous June 15th mark, is Father's Day. That's the return of Cruising Grand, which will go on out here uh, on the street. There's just a lot of stuff going on, and, and we don't want that to get lost in the mix. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and make that adjustment. So I hope that you find it helpful. It'll be good to see some of your uh, brothers and sisters again that maybe you haven't seen in some time. Marcus will give you some, some more details uh, during the announcement time, but wanted to make sure that you didn't miss that. All right. So we're talking parenting part due today. Uh, here in our series called Dancing on Eggshells. Now, if you're new to NBC, first time, Dancing on Eggshells, uh, we're saying, we're defining it this way, gliding gracefully on delicate subjects regardless of the crunch. Uh, and today, we're going to be talking about the lovely uh, subject of disciplining your kids. Now, uh, if you're a kid in the room, my hope is that by the time this is done, uh, you're going you're gonna to have um, not run out of the room. I, I don't think there's any reason to do it because as the Bible teaches us, God disciplines those he loves and in the same way parents discipline their children if they love them too. But this is a subject that really, really causes people to struggle. And I think a big part of it goes back to kind of the core problem we talked about last week where you have parents who, who have what we call at NBC the holy hierarchy kind of flipped around. The holy hierarchy means scripturally what the Bible teaches is that God comes first, the marriage comes second, the kids come third. And when you get that turned around like most people in society do, which is the kids come first, the marriage comes second, and God gets the scraps, then things can get really dicey. Here are a couple quotes from last Sunday's sermon that kind of give you the foundation of what we, what we had. All right, our children will not worship a God we have taught them is beneath them. All right, so if you go about teaching your kids that they're the most important thing in the world, uh, that God is not the most important thing, then it's going to be hard to teach them to worship God if they think they're the greatest, okay? In the same way, that leads to this one. Children who are taught that they are the most important thing in the world become adults who believe they're the most important thing in the world. So what we have to do is help them understand from the time that they're as small as possible. And I do want to say this, if, if, if your kids are now fully grown or maybe you're even estranged from them or uh, they're older and you kind of go, oh boy, you know, I don't know if there's any hope because I missed that one or whatever. There's always a chance to start, start new. Start today. 
uh, and let's, let's take the journey forward uh, together. And it might be as simple as just having a heart-to-heart with your, with your kids and saying, hey, listen, mom and dad or mom or dad or whoever's in the home, just say, hey, we're going to be making some changes, and here's why, and explain it to them, and then start executing, start, start doing it in a way that, that honors the Lord. So my hope is that today we're going to leave here uh, better equipped to love our kids, all right? Now, I mean love as God describes it, not the way that society uses that term too loosely, not in that kind of secular, humanistic way that we often throw the term around these days. Raising children in the way of the Lord is not easy. It is not easy. It's never been easy. It's really not easy today because Satan's methods of attacking marriages and children have become more aggressive. They become more nuanced. Uh, They disguise themselves much better, I think, than maybe they did in the past. But nevertheless, God has given us what we need to be able to uh, to, to please him in this regard. Um, my favorite parenting text, if you want one that should get your children into shape real quick, is this one from Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. There's your bedtime verse for tonight. And the next time that your kid gets out of line, just go, caw, at him and see, see what it does. Read that to him first, then do that in response. I jest, sort of. It's God's way of saying in that little axiom or proverb that if you choose to disobey your parents or dishonor your parents, okay, that that is a path that does not lead to a positive place for children. There is a lot in the Bible about children honoring their parents, children obeying their parents in the Lord, for this is right, honor your father and mother. I mean, it is not a minor teaching of the Bible. And when it comes to life under the home, you could probably make the case that other than the gospel center of the home, meaning God comes first in the home, that that might be the second most weighted text or sequence of text in the Bible. Parenting is a partnership, okay, with God in raising his kids. They were his kids first, as we talked about last week, and it's fine to raise kids, and I think, I think it is great when people raise their kids to be successful in the eyes of the world, but ultimately, our job as parents is going to be judged by priorities what we set and how faithfully we've honored God above all else. So we're going to take a look today uh, at one father of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 2. He was the high priest of Israel, and in general, people, when, they're, when they think back on this particular Bible character, they think very positively of him because... Hannah brings baby Samuel to the high priest Eli, who we're going to be talking about. He's the high priest of Israel. He can't be all bad, right? I mean, we would think that the guy that's the high priest, he gets that you have a job or two. You offer sacrifices uh, for the people uh, to God. Uh, You try to live a God-honoring life and role model for people. Uh, You intercede for the people in prayer. That Those are your jobs. Well, it turns out he was a father, and the Bible doesn't have very flattering things to say about his sons. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas, and the Bible says they were worthless men. 1 Samuel 2.12, here's what it says. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. <laughs> they did not know the Lord. All right, now that's an ugly characterization, and it's the kind that is very rare in the Bible. Like even when, when, when uh, the text is describing evil kings and wicked kings, it often doesn't say they were worthless. It'll just say they, they didn't follow the ways of the Lord, and in fact, they did so less than any of the kings before them or after them. But, but this is a very scorching indictment. 
Now, why are they called that? They're guilty of lying with women who stand at the door of the worship space of Israel. And they're guilty of letting them take more of the sacrifices than they were supposed to. So, hand in the cookie jar and then sleeping with the women who are at the door to the worship center. Not a good idea. Now, eventually, God sends a prophet to Eli. Usually, a prophet isn't going to the high priest. Prophets in the Old Testament are not fortune tellers. They're the thus saith the Lord people. They're the truth to power people. And usually, prophets go with kings who've gotten out of line. Uh, or they, they go to tell the king what to do next. Uh, but when the prophet has to go to the high priest, that's not a good sign. But a, high, a prophet is sent to Eli, and he tells him that because of his son's behavior, the priesthood will be taken away from his household. But he doesn't blame the sons as much as he blames Eli. Here's what God says, 1 Samuel 2.29. Why do you honor your sons above me? See, he sees it as, you knew that your, your children's behavior was an abomination to me, and yet you let it continue to happen. The role that you're in, Eli, means, in, if it doesn't mean another thing, it's to protect my house, if you will, from being defiled. You're allowing your sons to go on and to defile the temple area or the tabernacle area. And it's, he says that's not appropriate. And so you just let them continue to do it with impunity. That means that you respect and honor your children above me. Why do you honor your sons above me? First Samuel 3, uh, verse 10, it says that God's going to strip the priesthood from Eli and punish his house, quote, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Okay. I got three things for you today. First is this, a reminder of the purpose of parenting. That is raising lifelong followers of Jesus. That God doesn't judge our parenting skills by the techniques we use, okay, by their achievements, how good their prom pictures look. My daughter was at the prom last night. Her pictures turned out great. But that's not, God's not going to go, wow, Tim, you did a great job. You did a great job, Tim. Look at those prom pictures. Or, you know what? Hey, look at that. Another all-star award. Hey, look, another lead in the play. Tim, you've done everything that I asked you to do. No, I can do all of that and have done nothing that God asked me to do. But when my child or my children are being raised in the likeness of Jesus and being taught what God wants me to pass on to them, which is you follow his son for all your days, and you don't do it, just on the margins, you don't do it when you got some extra time. That's the prism through which you read your life. That's the prism through which you act, but the prism through which you live. So whenever you're facing a dilemma in your life, that's the question that gets asked. What would God think of this? What would God want me to do? That becomes the prism through which we do that. And so if you're a parent, you're involved in the daily raising of God's children. If you're in Christ, you're part of the body of Christ. And so the body is here to help. That you're part of a community of parents who are all taking that same trip together, albeit imperfectly at times, all the way across the board, myself included. But we're trying to take that journey together that says, hey, what we're about is we're trying to help these, these kids turn out to be more than just, you know, um, you know other kids here who, who beat other kids at at, at the things of this life. 
We want deep kids. We want kids of profound character who've been taught how to honor the Lord in everything that they do. And so we have to, once we understand the importance of it, that helps us be disciplined ourselves in how we discipline our children. Gordon MacDonald tells the story of a man in medieval times who asked three stonemasons on a construction project what they were doing. The first replied that he was laying bricks. The second described his work as that of building a wall. The third laborer, who demonstrated genuine esteem for his work, he said, I'm raising a great cathedral. Now, some of you have probably heard that story. I like what, what MacDonald says next. He says, pose that same question to any two fathers concerning their role in the family, and you're liable to get the same kind of contrast. The first may say, I'm supporting a family. But the second may see things differently and say, I'm raising children. See, the former looks at his job as putting bread on the table. The latter sees things in God's perspective. He's participating in the, shapings of li- in the shaping of lives. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of David Epstein, um, he wrote a book, he coined a term, kindergarten, the rule of children. Uh, Joseph Epstein was the guy who wrote the book, and uh, the, the book was called Under Kindergarten. And he was talking about how the transition that society made and kind of the, the pendulum swinging from one side where the parents were often very absent and very disconnected from their children to a different place where now children kind of drive the bus and parents are either on the helicopter train where they're, they, they, they're too enmeshed with their children or they found new ways to avoid parenting. So it looks on the surface like they're very involved with their kids. For instance, they drive them around a lot. But when you scratch the surface, reality is they, they, they're really more of an Uber for their kids than they are parents. That connection point there where, where you're actually doing the parenting and you're actually uh, engaging them and training them and discipling them as parents can get missed. So this story, or, or the book, he, he uh, defines the term kindergarten, and he says uh, this. Uh, he says, all arrangements, he's referring to kindergarten, are centered on children, their schooling, their lessons, their predilections, their care and feeding, and general high maintenance. Children are the name of the game in kindergarten, okay? So um, it it, it is a far bigger obstacle, I would suggest to you, in the world that we're living in than absenteeism is for parents. I, I think parents probably rightfully made that correction because there was a time when that might have been an issue. Um, but right now, for most, not all, right, the issue seems to be a total absorption in the matters, the thinking, the thoughts, and everything of the kids to where that drives the bus. What determines whether parents are coming to church or not is whether the kid wants to go or not. Uh, what determines what they sign up for, how the money gets spent in the house is all determined by the kids, not really the parents. The parents have their default answer set to yes. So as all of this is uh, going on, you see, and I'll just say, I'm not, I'm not saying this is uh, easy, because if you picture them, it's almost like trying to hold three beach balls under the water, all right? There's going to be a, a, a desire of those things to kind of move and shift and, and pop up. But those beach balls, if you will, might be those three prongs of the hierarchy that we were talking about. And I don't like using the term hierarchy in that, except that it helps you determine what order things should go in. It's supposed to be God first, 
marriage next. And marriage doesn't mean to the exclusion of the kids. It just means when push comes to shove, we don't betray our partners for kids. That, that when the Garden of Eden happens, there's a man and a woman there. There are no kids there. Not at first. They're told, go have some kids. But then there's going to come a day when they're going to leave you and be joined to their spouse, and they're going to move on. I'm at that doorstep right now. Uh, and I can tell you that, that <laughs> many kids who hit 18 years old, are, they hit that point where they want to do that three or four years before. Uh, chomping at the bit to have some independence and go off and do their thing. So who you've raised them to become, okay, matters a lot. Matters a lot. So as we follow Jesus, he transforms life at home for the better. But that's the trick. It's the, I'm going to use the word discipline interchangeably to talk about two things. Disciplining your kids is one. But the other is the discipline of disappointing your kids. Because sporadic and unpredictable discipline can do almost as much damage as anything. It's the consistency of disappointing your kids that is rooted in love, not hate, not anger, love, that actually allows it to be effective. And when it's done with consistency, you end up doing less of it. Let me ask you this. We'll use money as an illustration. Who has more financial freedom? A person who has no budget, just kind of buys whatever they want, whenever they want, takes whatever trip they want, whenever they want. Let's assume two people make the same amount of money. You got that guy, and then on the other side, you've got somebody who actually has a budget. Uh, they save every month. They live within their means. Uh, they give generously. Who's going to have more financial freedom at the end of the day? Well, this guy, clearly. We think that impulsivity means freedom. It doesn't. Uh, who has, uh, who's going to end up more fit at the end of the day? The person who jams whatever they want to into their mouth whenever, decides if they want to work out that day or not, or the person who kind of is very disciplined about what they eat, they have a workout exercise regimen, and they have some standards. Well, so the question really goes back to then, what are you aiming for? And if you're trying to raise your kids into the likeness of Jesus, it means that you don't just discipline them. You discipline them in a disciplined way way. So point two, God's love disciplines. Okay, now many of us say that we love our kids. I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do. But in reality, a child-centered parent, probably, if they're child-centered, there's some love in there, perhaps, of a certain kind. But spiritually, what the Bible would suggest is what they have is idolatry masquerading as love. Love, by its nature, disciplines. It seeks God's best for the other. It seeks the growth of the person, not simply the comfort of the person. So one of the most important parenting texts is found in Hebrews 12, and it's addressed not to a group of parents, but a group of God's kids who are now all grown up. And they're enduring a lot of suffering, and they're considering giving up. This is Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. He says, have you, not, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, let that sink in, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Get this, God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Oh, really? He seems to assume all of this, right? Uh, And we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Now, our parenting's supposed to be a reflection of God, a microcosm of God's way of loving us as our Heavenly Father. And in Scripture, love does not equal the absence of discipline. Love demands and requires discipline for the child's growth and well-being. In Scripture, discipline is a natural outpouring of love. A lack of discipline is viewed as a sign of love's absence. Love's absence. Not, Not its presence. Absence. Now, there's an argument to be made, and it happens all the time. Um... I'm teaching a group of college kids right now and walking them through what I'm about to take you through next. But the, 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 it's interesting to hear because they're at this point, they've just experienced freedom from their parents. And they're looking back on their life and they're looking where they want to go. And hearing them and throwing out some real-time parenting things, okay, what should I do? In nearly every case, they will pick, get this, do you think they'll pick the harsher or the lighter treatment? Take a guess. Lighter. Come on. Wake up. Elbow your neighbor. What? Lighter. Lighter. You're wrong. I would have said that too. I would have said that too. If I was sitting out there and I hadn't taught almost every time, they'll say, I would do this. So if it's like, hey, your your kid keeps coming home perennially late and not doing whatever, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. What would you do? I'd do that. What does that tell you? They understand themselves intuitively, now that they're not under the discipline of their parents, that that helps change character, or there's a hunger for the discipline that they didn't receive when they were younger. Okay, so all I'm suggesting to you is that you, we can talk all day long about you know, how to discipline your kids. I think there are different ways to do that. It doesn't have to be physical. I don't think it's wrong to be physical. I think it's wrong to be physical in anger, and I think it's wrong to out of anger or fear or because we can't handle the pain of it to avoid the physical, all right? But there are a lot of ways. We can talk about how to do it, but whether to do it and how consistently to do it, that's a biblical mandate. And so we parents need to make sure that we're obeying the Lord in how we do those things, all right? Now, it does change, right? When they're little dudes, it might be a little thwack on the hand or it might be a little whatever, right? Well, now it's great, actually. I think, I think parenting teens is awesome because you have so many more pressure points. <laughs> you, <laughs> all right, give me the keys. Oh, that hurts way worse. Or, hey, uh, and, and there's a certain point where they're just starting to get some money. Oh, man, uh, paying fines is a beautiful way to, to do that. Um, 
You know, there's a lot of ways that you could discipline your kids without it, right? Grounding for some kids is a big deal. When I was younger, grounding did nothing for me. I'm a contemplative. You can put me in a desert for 30 years and I would be totally happy. Now, I'm very extroverted at this point in my life, but that was not a big deal. Oh, go to your room for a week. It was like, sweet, sweet, good. Don't have to put up with my knucklehead friends. I don't have to do anything like that. I get out of practice. It's going to be sweet, all right? So they learned that Tim responds better to other things. No car. When I was younger, I didn't like being yelled at or spanked. And they knew that they could get a little bit further with that than they could the other, right? So you use some wisdom. That was when I was younger, when, when I was like 18 or something. But there were times when, when you're three or four, you are determining early how your parents see, or how your kids see authority. And the way that they see authority and the way you teach them to do that is how they're going to see the authority of God later in life. And if they lack the ability to respect authority when they're younger, they're going to have a struggle respecting authority in heaven when they get older. Because they haven't learned to respect their earthly father. So, and Hebrews is the one that draws that link, right? How the treatment of earthly fathers go and the behavior of earthly fathers to the heavenly father. And that there is a link between those and how people are trained. Okay, uh, I will add this to the mix. There will be an unwillingness later in life often to submit to authority of any kind. And I will, I will also add this. They will struggle with suffering. Remember the context of Hebrews 12 that we just read. If discipline is a sign of lack of love, then we have no framework for understanding God's discipline. We find ourselves going, okay, how could a loving God allow me to go through this? When the scriptures say that God is love, which is why he disciplines us. Go back to Hebrews 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God's love disciplines, and our disciplining of our kids imitates God's love for us. We don't just imitate the love of Christ when we do nice things for kids. We love them when we train them to obey their parents and most of all, to obey their heavenly father. Now that they're adults, going back to Hebrews 12 for a moment, and experiencing God's discipline, he points back to their earthly upbringing. You know how, you know how your parents used to do that because they loved you? And he, you can picture them going, yeah, 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 that's, that's exactly right. You're like, well, why do you think that God is doing this for a different reason? He expects them to get the answer to these rhetorical questions intuitively because of the way their parents had raised them. So he says, so don't look at God and say, oh, he must hate me. You didn't do that with your earthly parents, did you? No. Okay, well, why, why are you think that because you're suffering here that that means God has turned his back on you? Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. Okay, now this is going to get a little dicey for a second, but it's important. I think this will help you. Draw, draw a quadrant, like a, what looks like a cross on your paper. And I'm going to go ahead and talk because, again, the issue here is pain in Hebrews 12. All right. Our ability to love is proportionate to our ability to tolerate pain in ourselves and those we love. Okay. The reason that we don't discipline our kids is the same reason we don't discipline ourselves. It hurts. Okay. <laughs> it hurts. It is hard to discipline your kids. It's hard 
to have them cry. It is hard to feel like you've hurt them in some way, even if you haven't. It just feels that way. It feels sad. It bums you out. I don't know if I go as far as the parent adage, this hurts me more than it hurts you. That's probably a lie, but it helps us in the moment, doesn't it? You just kind of go, it is. It is very hard. And it doesn't matter if it's a physical encounter with a toddler or whether it's taking the car keys away and them getting upset at you or whatever. It just doesn't feel good, which is why we don't do it regularly. Now, it can be that we can't handle. So you see, uh, we, have, we have two different kinds of pain we suffer. The pain I endure and the pain endured by my kids. Now, this will apply, by the way, to any relationship you have and frankly, any, uh, the way that people behave in companies or organizations or anything. This is not original to me. A guy named Peter Steinke uh, talked about this. But I have, at any given moment, an ability to tolerate pain in myself and in you. So, um, if I'm what you would call high, high, I would say that's where Jesus is. High in his ability to tolerate pain in himself. You see him go to the cross. High in his ability to tolerate pain in his followers. If you want to come after me, pick up your cross daily, follow me. Get behind me, Satan, whatever. He's willing to say what he needs to, even in the prodigal son. The father is willing to give his son what they need to. to, to uh, if he wants to go, he equips him to go. That must have been very hard. You can kind of sense he was in pain because at the end he r- runs to meet him. But at the same time, he doesn't change the house rules in order to accommodate the son. Well, how much money would it take to get you to stay here? He didn't say that. And nor does he say, I'll change the rules of the house. God is who he is. He keeps his rules intact. All right? So there's high, high. High, low, this is where many, many parents are. Especially, I would argue, if I can generalize, so don't send me emails. I know this can go either way on gender, but moms particularly are high, low. Okay? I can tolerate a lot of pain in myself, but I can't tolerate much pain in you. So it's, um, it's the, um, you know, th- th- it, when taken to an extreme, this can, is an enabling personality, okay? Um, oh, you, you need money for drugs? <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, oh, you got arrested again? Uh, you know what? Hey, wrongfully accused for the 30th time. Uh, those kinds of personalities, right? I can handle a lot of, yeah, I'll bail you out again. Yeah, I'll write the check for it. Yeah, I'll do whatever, right? High, I can handle a lot. Low, I don't want you to suffer at all. Uh, a parent who, when the kid gets caught doing something at school, yells, calls and yells at the principal automatically without, because they don't want the kid to experience the, the, the consequences of their action. Low, low, none in myself, none in you. These are the status quo people. I don't want to rock the boat. Let's just all be happy. Let's all just be quiet. Let's just, hey, everything's going to be fine. Everybody's fine. You're going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. Everybody's fine. Low, low. Low, high, these are the least popular people on the planet. I can't handle any pain in myself, but I can tolerate a lot in you. Uh, these, are, these are at the extreme. This is like a terrorist. Okay? Uh, and, and then backing away from that, dysfunctional, abusive kinds of relationships. This is the root. I can tolerate a lot in you, but none in myself. All right, now... What's the importance here? Because our ability to love, and I would, you can put and to discipline in parentheses, is proportionate to our ability to tolerate pain in myself and in my kids. So if I know, like for instance, if I know that I, I cannot, I don't have the strength, the power, the will 
to have my kid say, you know what, I wish I had another dad. If they ever did that, they'd be busted for that too. But, but let's say, if I, can't, if I just can't handle that because it would break my heart, the last time I did this, they were ruthless on me. And I just can't do that again. I'm not going to discipline them. Now that's a low, probably a low, low move. But what I'm going to suggest to you is plant, put yourself on this, map yourself somewhere. Now, there are days where I'm high, high, and there are days I'm low, 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 high, high, low. I'm all of these. I move around. Most of us do. But the goal needs to be, I don't want, and this, by the way, does not mean that you don't feel the pain. Every box there feels the same pain. It's a matter of what the threshold for pain is to get you to change what you believe in, to change your actions that would be driven by your principles. How much pain can I endure? What would it take to get me to quit doing what I know I'm supposed to do? Okay? Now, you can look at this, and you can probably think of your own parents. You can think of uh, even, and by the way, all of your kids can be mapped here too. And what we're trying to do is to help them grow in their ability to allow their convictions rather than their feelings to drive the way they behave. Okay? Now, well, all right, so I'm on the low, low side. How do I get to the high, high side? Okay, baby steps. You know, I'll, I'll quote, uh, I, don't, I don't think I can quote him directly, but in principle, I love, uh, in a book called Discipline Equals Freedom, a guy named Jocko Willink, former Navy SEAL, he says, he goes, how do I go to the gym more often? Go to the gym more often. You know what I mean? It's like, how do I eat less carbs? You eat less carbs. How do I endure more pain? You endure more pain. You practice it, right? So maybe, maybe, maybe you don't, you're not a ninja at this right away, but, but you get there slowly. Next time you have a small encounter, you stand your ground. You do the disciplinary thing. And then you do it again. Then you do it again. Next thing you know, you're realizing, hey, you know what? They got a little mad at me and the earth didn't fall apart. And you can feel the pleasure of God because you did what he was supposed to do. Now, as parents, God, this is a Ephesians 5, a late 5 and early 6, is going to hold parents accountable for exasperating their kids. So it doesn't mean that you get to go out and, and be kind of an autocrat, an aimless autocrat, because you enjoy the power you have over your kids. That's ungodly too. But he has put parents in a unique position of authority. And Jesus role models this for us by being willing to lay his own life down for us and at the same time loving us enough to discipline us. That's what Hebrews 12 says. Lastly, habits turn into character. We tend to overemphasize the big, splashy things we do and minimize the everyday. And that's a critical method mistake, I would say, that, that Scripture points us to. You know what? We're going to take a huge two-week trip to Orlando and have the time of our lives at Disney World. We're not. I'm just, this is a hypothetical. All right? But let's say, and, and you think that that's going to make your family special. Meanwhile, you ignore 52 or 50 weeks of the year, the habits that make up the year, and you think that Orlando is going to fix it. No. No, in fact, if these habits are poor, what Orlando is going to do is reinforce the poorness of the discipline over here. So if 
if, if we were to focus then on habits, everyday habits, okay, and I'm going to give you in lightning round fashion here, okay, as I'm running out of time, here are about five or six things that are not verbatim rolled out in Scripture, but they have very biblical roots. So I'm going to give you the thing and then the root, all right? So we'll call this practical foundations for parenting. And by the way, before we get here, if you doubt the habits part, remember our text last week or one of them, Deuteronomy 6. says, says, hey, you talk to your kids, you tell these stories, when you get up, when you go to bed, when you're walking on the road, bind them on your foreheads, put them on your wrists. That's a way of saying do it all the time. Do it all the time. If you want to stick, do it all the time. All right, moving on. Got to be quick. Um, Start with this question. If God was really first in our home, how would life at home need to be different? I mean, and drag the magnet over the sand of your house. Would you need to cut back on stuff? Would you need to change the way you spent money? Would it be, we scream at each other too much. We need to lower the thermostat in here, emotionally. Would it be, I've been gone too much. I need to be at home more. Would it be, what would it be? Okay. So you ask that question, and, that, and then, I mean, I would literally sit and write this stuff down. What could we tweak? What could we change? How can we adapt this? And, um, you know, my, my family was, was good at this growing up, mostly because whenever they made a decision that I didn't agree with, there was an explanation that at least made sense to me spiritually. So they might say, you know what, hey, we're not going to do that um, because we feel like um, God would want us to do this instead. What they're teaching me is not just no, it's no because God would want this. And that's a very important uh, thing, okay? It's not just, oh, I don't want you to do that, or oh, that's going to cost me some money, so I'm just going to say no. It's here's why. All right, very quickly, here we go. Uh, you, You take that magnet, then you move to the God comes first kind of metric, okay? Kids in the house, here's one for you. Obey your parents the first time they ask you. I thought I'd get some amens out of the parents in the house. (laughs) Obey the first time they ask you. The first time, okay? Not the 20th time. The first time. Um, And the root of that is honor your father and mother. Children, obey your parents. It didn't say obey obey them eventually. Obey them on your own schedule. You honor your parents and then parents practice the rule of the first time. Okay? Uh, Olivia, I'm just going to pick her out of the out of the, my, my middle daughter, Olivia. Olivia, she's clicking my slides right now. I better be nice. Uh, uh, Olivia, hey, take your dishes to the sink. Okay. Hey, can you, can you take your dishes to the sink? Olivia, take your dishes to the sink. Olivia, am I speaking English? I mean, we, we, we tracking her. Oh, yeah, Dad, I'll get to it when I get to it. No. Now. How about now? How about we get to it now? Okay. This goes on seven, eight, nine times. Now, this isn't really, this is not a true story. This is a, a hypothetical. All right. By the time I get to 10 or 12, where am I at? I'm at molten lava phase at this point, right? And if I haven't dealt with it early, then a couple of things are happening. I'm telling them they can tell me no 11 times. The second thing is when I react, now you're going to get the Hulkified dad, you know, and I'm going to like tear my shirt off and be like, take your dishes to the sink. And you're going to overreact. And then you run the risk 
of overreacting, over-disciplining, and making yourself look, what's, I think, the word stupid that I'm looking for. Um, obedience under threat of violence or screaming does not teach obedience. It teaches submission to force. Yep. Those are two different things. Uh, next, practice grace, not weakness disguised as grace. They'll know when you're practicing grace versus weakness. Grace given all the time is weakness. Grace given when they know that you are consistently willing to discipline them comes across as, to them as grace. Okay? And grace, grace is, usually comes along with repentance and things like that, right? But but practice grace, not weakness uh, disguised as grace. Uh, I would encourage you highly to budget your extracurricular activities as a family. And that goes for mom and dad, too. Uh, mom and dad can get out there and get involved in 40 softball leagues or um, guys' nights out or girls' book clubs or whatever it is. And the next thing you know, uh, they're gone almost all the time. The kids are gone all the time. Um, and, and so you'll know and can use your own judgment on that. We, we started with one thing at a time. You can do one thing at a time. Uh, and the reason was, God's first. We're going to do everything the church does every time the doors are open. So everything else works around that. Second, uh, that when our kids were real small and was in a, in a graduate school program that took her all over the world, I was a single dad for a big chunk of that year. Our kids were young. I'm starting a church. And it's like, I can't, I can't have them in eight things each. Okay, or it'll, I'll have to make a decision. Am I going to basically have no wife, no life and no wife, uh, for some period of time and just do it so that at four years old they can have these life-changing memories of another gymnastics class? And in the meantime, I'm going to collapse from exhaustion um, or and just be frenetically spending every night running them around to things, or can they wait on some of those things so that our family can live in rhythm and balance. That's a discussion you'll need to, you'll need to have. Um, marriage before kids, that's something I would articulate out loud in your house. I don't think you say, well, you come last. That's not it. When, you, when your kids wonder why you and your spouse are taking a trip or when they wonder why you guys are going on a date night again. Now, my experience has been with our kids. It provides them a lot of security, and they enjoy seeing their parents loving each other. Uh, they don't feel jilted by that. As they get older, they are thrilled when you leave the house. Um, they, they can't wait for you to leave the house, okay? But now, uh, in the early years when they're, and I, and I, I do know, and I mean, look, every, every parent, I don't want to cast judgment on anybody in the way they, they parent, but um, I do think that holding the, uh, the practices that some of us have, I, I've had people at, at, at our church even over the years, say, uh, you know, that, it, you know, their kid was seven or eight years old and they had not been out on a date night since their kid was born. And then the reason that I knew that was because they had come to me because the marriage was struggling, right? Uh, so there's part of that that you go, all right, look, we got to, yeah, you got to, here's some tweaks to make. And, and I think you ought to say it out loud. If you're a single parent, your personal care is enormously important, Okay. You've got to make sure that you are cared for in some way, shape, or form that you're doing the work you need to do to create enough boundary in your life that you don't, you're not going through your life more exhausted than, than you already are, but that your heart is as full as it can be, that you're spiritually in sync, okay? All of that matters um, because now 
And in some ways, the stakes have been raised a little bit because now it's you and the kids. Um, make a decision about how much light and darkness you're going to let into the house. Now, I know that the temptation is to say no darkness or whatever, but, but there, are, there is a way to go too much with this, and I, that's probably another sermon. But you're going to need to make some... Uh, what I mean by this is pay attention to the friends your kids are making. Uh, pay attention to um, what they're watching in their rooms on their phones. Uh, pay attention to... Um, have your ear to the ground of their life enough that you know what's going on with they and their friends and those kind of things. Um, and then lastly, I, I'm out of time, so I'm just going to have to, we'll pick it up next week somewhere. But here's a small one that I will give you that changed our world. Chip, click it. Don't argue after 10. Do you want a life-changing? Now, I know there are people who say, we never went to bed angry. Okay. Um, good for you is what I would say. Uh, but what I would say is this. You know how many arguments we've avoided by simply looking at our watch and saying it's 1030? Let's come back at it tomorrow. And we wake up, nobody's upset anymore. Our batting average, we realized that 85% of our arguments were after 10 o'clock at night. I wonder why. Now, it's easy to obey it because we can't stay up much past 10. <laughs> we're so old, it's like, I'm going to bed. See you later. And there's no like, oh, no, let's stay up and have a four-hour argument uh, about whatever. And then going to bed at 2.30 and then waking up again for work the next day on three or four hours of sleep and then expecting that, you know what, I'm so glad we did that. That changed our marriage because I went to bed knowing that nobody was mad at anybody. No, you argued about it till you fell asleep is what happened. Exactly. All right. So, and this applies to your kids. The same thing that makes you fight with your spouse after 10 causes you to fight with your kids after 10. It just does. So we've kind of had this role where now we got kids that come home after 10 o'clock or whatever. Uh, we might deal with it, but it'll, it'll go something like this. Hey, thought we agreed that you were going to be home at 10. Yeah, that's hard. Okay, we'll talk about it tomorrow. All right? And then we talk about it tomorrow. But I'm going to be cooled off. I'm not going to be mad. I will be rested because I actually got a decent night's sleep, and they're going to have a better father to engage with when the discipline comes, and I'll have a little bit more chutzpah, okay, when I do it. Uh, so uh, this is something I promise you, okay, if you institute this in your marriage, you're going to go, we don't even fight anymore. And you're going to be like, whoa. Um, and it will limit, you will have probably 50% of the fights that you used to have, period, because you just simply, it's not, you realize it's not that important. Like you wake up the next day, it's like, what are, we, what are we arguing about again? Okay. Now, I know some of the people in here, well, I can't sleep if I know that they're mad. Okay. That, that tells me if you're really afraid your marriage is going to fall apart over one argument, then the problem was before that fight took place. But if your marriage is abundant and you're doing that, then I'm not worried about Emily leaving me by the time I get up in the next morning because we're going to have a fight. We can literally say, hey, listen. I know we need to talk about this, and I'm willing to. So, and if you need to put an appointment on the calendar to do it, then do it. But the root of this is not allowing anger. The biblical root has to do with anger. I'm not going, I'm going to be angry, but not sin. I'm going to, I want to talk to you about this in a way that is measured and disciplined rather than furious. All right. Um, so here's what I've decided. I've decided that I would rather have my kids live with a mom and dad, striving desperately to follow Jesus, 
than anything else. I want them to see that, and I want our family to live that. And if we get to the end and some of that stuff doesn't, you know, they got a, few le- a little bit less wallpaper, one less trophy in the case, that's okay. The trophy they're shooting for is a different trophy in a different place. So uh, with that in mind, we got to get around the Lord's table real quick. Let's, uh, let's have our family lunch here, family brunch. Uh, you should have got a bag uh, when you came in that has the elements in it, uh, bread and cup. And um, as we do, we do this every week here at New Vintage. And the bread represents the body of Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. The cup represents his blood. And so as we take this now, um, let's remember the one who loves us enough to discipline us. If you didn't get one and you'd like one, put your hand in the air. We've got some ushers coming around with their with the elements. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for all that Jesus means to us, uh, for you being an honorable, majestic, amazing, loving God who is willing to discipline us because you love us, we say thank you. Father, because of your great love for us that's demonstrated most clearly in the cross of Christ, we say thank you. And we ask, Father, that you give us eyes to see how you would want us to parent your children as they grow up under our care. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for setting that example for us and how you deal with us so gently and so perfectly. May we be, may, may that be reflected in how we treat and parent our children. We love them, Father, and we love you as well, most of all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.